Hello, and welcome back to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. And this week, Luke will be touring us around. Do you want to give us a little intro? Thank you, Katie. Welcome, folks, to London Stinks Part <laughs> 2, The Great Smog. Ooh. Ooh, spooky. So this, <laughs> uh, this takes off where we left last week with the interesting ecological pollution public health crises that have faced the capital of the United Kingdom over the centuries. Last week, we took a deep watery dive into the <laughs> sewers <laughs> of London, which I'm still recovering from, Katie. Watery, was... watery makes it sound much nicer than what it was. <laughs> yeah, I'm being very oblique. <laughs> it was a very interesting journey into the Broad Street pump and sanitation and the brilliance of Dr. Jon Snow, who Ugh. made us understand the link of cholera and the polluted water source. And let me just say, if you haven't looked at some of the things that Luke posted on Instagram, you are missing out because... I was cackling when he yeah. updated the Instagram. <laughs> the internet has done amazing work for us. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of nerds out there who are wise to the Jon Snow memes. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of Game of Thrones references. Um, you know, King of the North crossed out King of modern epidemiology. Uh, <laughs> Jon Snow, black and white, sitting on the Iron Throne. Very delightful. <laughs> very fun. What a world we live in. Throne, aka toilet. It's great. Oh, it goes on. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a story about the ecological disaster uh, taking place in London in December of 1952. It was known as the Great Smog. It was also known as the Killer Fog or the mm. Killer Smog. It was a traumatic event. It was a, a sort of uh, flashbulb memory and people who were alive in that time. And it, of course, yields dividends historically in the world we now live in, in which we live in an era where we, we tend to understand air pollution a little better, air quality. We take we take a little more seriously in our modern world, but that well, wasn't- Well, some of us. <laughs> yes, depending on where you stand on the Kyoto, Tio, Tokyo protocols uh -huh. and, and all of that stuff. So it's still a football politically. Mm -hmm. And and it's a, a really interesting thing, Katie, because I was thinking about a lot of things that we've talked about in our museum world mm. that parallel with this. And I think you, you'll understand where I'm going with this in a little bit about how something like this happens in the moment when it's happening, it may be hellish for those involved, but they may not perceive or understand what the fullness of the result is. What's the what's the, the ultimate impact? The impact, yeah. yes, the health effects of these events. Yes. And how some of them are short term, most of the time they're long term. Mm -hmm. And how governments, agencies, historians frame the history relates to our understanding of who was impacted. You know, as an example, we think about who dies in a conflict, who is killed on a battlefield versus those killed by infection, those killed by, you know, uh, infectious diseases, lack of sanitation in a military camp. Right. All of these things are part of the same thing. And, and disease often in those situations, I mean, if you think about something like the Civil War, the amount who died of dysentery versus battle, I mean, it's wild. I was re-watching the John Adams HBO series. I did too. Oh, Fourth oh, of July, nerds unite. Sweet, <laughs> sweet medicine. And, you know, Ooh. they're reading these Washington dispatches and, you know, the sanitation in my Valley Forge is terrible and mm -hmm. the, ty the typhus has taken out many men you know it was if you were able to survive the winter in these camps to get to the killing spring you, you'd just be shot in the head as soon as you, you know, recover from your latest disease um it <laughs> what, was what a great time <laughs> it was just terrible terrible so we're gonna focus folks on december 5th through 9th 1952 70 years ago. So as we know, the beloved queen of Great Britain, Elizabeth II, has celebrated 70 years on the throne, her latest jubilee. And so she was recently installed as the monarch in Great Britain. This is a few months into her reign. And there is a beloved yet controversial prime minister who is steering the course of the ship of state by the name of Winston Churchill. 
And so this crisis <laughs> arguably is one of the first times that her medal is tested as a monarch. Mm. And the, the show, The Crown on Netflix, delightfully depicts this crisis. And I must say, I was not aware of the extent of this crisis until I saw the show. And Same. I had actually never even heard of it, to be yeah. perfectly honest, until The Crown. And I remember when the episode came out, we were texting each other where I was like, what the hell is this? I'm like, it's terrible. And I felt like so, so terrible for my ignorance. But Same, the yeah. story is true. It's devastatingly true. And the show does a great job of covering it. Um, and of course, it takes some artistic liberties. And full disclosure, folks, the show is not about me and what I do. But I wear many hats. And I often wear a Homburg as Winston Churchill. Uh, he's one of my characters who I portray. And as one of my one of my favorite hats of yours, to As be a, honest. Luke is Luke, while while incredibly young for the role, he is flawlessly great. I am like thirty years too young, but this yes. is what I, I tend to I tend to favor portly older men of history. That's my type. Um, oh, me so, too. <laughs> so I Lincoln aside. Um, so He's the only one. So I have uh, played Churchill a number of times in, in person as a living historian, first person interpretation. So if you were to meet me as Churchill at an event, I would speak to you as Churchill and try to, you know, just convey his spirit. Um, very difficult character to play. He had a crazy lisp. He, you know, had terrible. Tongue tied, I he, heard. He was such an amazing character. And it's, you know, inevitably you end up kind of sending up Gary Oldman or Brian Cox or John Lithgow, who is my favorite actor of all time. I was going to say of the of the Churchills, who who is your favorite? I would say of the recent Churchills, because obviously Churchill's been played forever. But he has been played by so many guys. Yeah, I absolutely love what Gary Oldman did. Me too. Um, I absolutely love it. It's such a tender performance. I sometimes I love John Lithgow to death, and I'm so happy he's in it. But I do think he was a was you know it was a weird casting. It was a weird choice. He's too big. He's so like he's big. too imposing, in like physically versus. Uh, yeah, Gary Oldman was just the perfect person. Yeah, because you so can good. You can build Gary Oldman into that frame, whereas yeah. they were trying to deconstruct Lithgow into this like because Churchill was short. He was my height. He was like five 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 six five seven. Yeah. Um, and he was you know hunched and gravelly and just he this... got his cantankerous attitude right. I would say he did. Lithgow was of, good for that. He got a lot of grumbling. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I I think all the are all they're all performances are are wonderful. So what happens in December of 1952 is there's a unique confluence of factors. You have a polluted city that is pretty much banking on the natural ventilation that occurs in the atmosphere. We know we're belching smoke and coal refuse into the air, but the air will circulate and we can survive. But these things don't always happen. There's a problem with cold air being trapped by hot air. Mm -hmm. And what happens is this prolonged crisis where the nation's capital comes to a standstill. Many people suffer unfortunate, untimely deaths. Many suffer from health effects that are accrued in the years following. So to sort of set the scene a little bit, how do we define and start with the history of London air? Well, <laughs> we've kind of we've kind of scratched the surface. We have. We've sniffed and scratched the surface. We have taken a whiff. Now take a deep <laughs> breath, folks, and be grateful for the filtered air that you now enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, London has suffered from terrible air conditions since as early as the 13th century. So um, crazy. A long time. And it even goes back to, you know, medieval times. Coal was the chief form of energy and right. the key ingredient of industry. So you described last week beautifully how the Industrial Revolution ratchets up industry and it also ratchets up the population centers of places mm -hmm. like London. And you don't have like you have today commercial centers and business districts. You might have had them arbitrarily in certain places. There was, you know, the, the fisheries and certain places you had like sort of a red light district or the tanneries and things like that. But often there'd be people living in three or four stories right above wherever that shit was going on. <laughs> right. Um, so these things are all mixed together. And so Coal was the thing. Sea coal was an industry where these men would literally shovel coal that they would find in the river. Because, again, just dumping everything in the river. Why not? So they would dump <laughs> coal out of the river and sell it. And they would burn it. In the it. Thames, specifically? The coal in, was the, in the Thames? In the Thames and in other rivers throughout. Oh, that coal was no good. 
No, it was bad, bad, bad. So there's a early prophet of this who I had to talk about. His name is John Evelyn. And he writes an amazing book in the 1660s called Fumafugium. Ooh, great word. Yes. Or the inconvenience of the air and smoke of London. <laughs> And 1661, he's writing to Charles II, uh, the King of England, and he's discussing the problems of air pollution that have been with them for already centuries at that point. Which is crazy, because when you think about the 1660s, like where I'm from, New York, we're just being born in terms of the modern world. Mm. Like, we're still wilderness yeah, we have no country. We have no pollution problems. People are throwing oyster shells in the water and burning fires. Yeah, that's the worst you got. That's and, the worst. And obviously, you got. cutting down trees on mass. That's that's yes. pretty bad too. But like, the, it's what when you you forget, or at least I do, because I am American, that the problems that we are facing in this country are pretty new, although really bad. Yes. Versus this these centuries and centuries of stuff that England has been dealing with. It's really it's really crazy. It is, and. Evelyn appeals to the wisdom of the age, and he refers back to the idea of the Greek philosophers who mm. believed that air was the principal sort of uh, soul of the earth and the primary substance that makes up who we are. And that isn't that an amazing connection to this idea of miasma? That oh, absolutely, yeah. That the toxins in the physical environment or the, the built environment or outside in general can affect the spirit, the disposition of the people. What a wonderful concept. It's kind of philosophical and not it's pseudoscientific, but yeah. it's it's on the right track. And but so that's, you know, like you said, it's the phrase of bad air. It doesn't just mean it smells bad. It's like the quality of air affects the quality of your, not just your health, but your general well-being, your mind, everything. And while it seems a little rudimentary to us now, at the core of it, they're right. Yes. And you're always appealing to the divine, to heaven, or to an enlightened spirit. And the idea is that, you know, heaven is a place of pure air. And we're mm -hmm. here in this, we're here in this hellish, blackish hellscape. <laughs> this Get the Stinksville down here. City Dick Van Dyke, you know, hello, Govla. <laughs> um, so, and the word fumifuge is what drives away smoke or who drives away smoke. Think about fumigate. So, this yeah, okay, fumifugium. Such an amazing word. I so love to, it. To yeah. disinfect or purify an area. So Evelyn had a couple of points that were so prophetic. He describes how air quality affects humans' health. And the idea is that the air is the vehicle to the soul. He recommends removing polluting trades from the city. So get mm. your get your tanneries, get your coal fires, get those things out of the population centers. So he was pushing for this already in the 1660s. We haven't even hit real industry yet. That's crazy. You're talking about shops. You're talking about small concerns. But the idea is that we have to bifurcate this from the where, where people live. In the country, this is no problem. But in the city, this is becoming an issue. Um, and he, he also had this amazing, gorgeous, kind of like pre-Victorian concept where he recommended sweet-smelling flowers to be planted throughout the city. <laughs> oh, honey! <laughs> and like lovely green spaces. So him and Olmsted would have been besties um, in terms of filtering out the pollution. Um, and so in the time, there were these great stinking fogs mm. in as early as the 1600s where, you know, usually they would come once or twice a year. It was definitely related to weather, the, the sort of seasons, always in the winter. They would usually claim 300 lives like every year. There'd be a stink and there'd be a mass death that would follow. Mm. Now, you inspired me last week because of the night soilman. <laughs> so I've discovered yet another dirty job of history. So yes. there were women, specifically women, who were called the searchers. And the job of the searchers was to go to the houses where people were sick or had just deceased and to examine the bodies to determine how they might have died. And they were probably called up when these fogs set in, like, oh, get oh, the so like early coroners, basically? Yes, kind of like Florence Nightingale type, you know, Fascinating. fearless women who I'm sure were like masked up or something. I would hope so. Probably not, though, if we're and being so, honest. so, <laughs> no, the cause of death at the time was known as tissic, T-I-S-S-I-C-K. So think of like sick with tis in the front. Hmm. And it, it often resulted in victims spitting up blood. Oof. So think about respiratory issues. That's it definitely makes a hallmark. Sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, London is never clear of this smoke, which is a plague 
and intolerable because it doesn't kill at once, but it's always worse than even death itself. That's a rough paraphrase mm. from John Evelyn. So it goes on, despite the warning signs of John Evelyn. In 1873, 700 Londoners were killed in a single week of fog. Crazy. In 1880, 2,000 were killed. <gasps> so Whoa. these numbers are humbling. And by 1900, by the turn of the century, London was covered for 90 days a year in a dense yellow fog, usually in winter. So it has everything to do with the temperature, ladies and gentlemen. And it becomes a part of the culture of London. I have a London fog jacket who doesn't i mean right? it's, it's part of the charm of london in a sense albeit very deathly charm t.s Eliot referred to the fog as a yellow cat snarling its paws Oof. and tails around the city sir arthur conan doyle think about sherlock holmes the london fog so is much always, fog. always the backdrop of these murders mm -hmm. and these mysteries and he described the fog as yellow and oily droplets and the color of the fog is something I didn't really understand. Because yellow. I didn't. This is news to me. That's disgusting. It's disgusting. And also there was a whole industry of people who had to clean the exteriors, cleaning chimneys, but cleaning the exteriors of homes that were just disgusting and windows. <gasps> I yeah. didn't even think about that. Ew. Yeah. yeah. So you're Ugh. scraping and you're flushing and you're, yeah. What's really cool in a sense is that we often think of this history. I was looking at our Instagram grid. It's like all black and white shit because <laughs> it really is <laughs> color. Um, we'll get into this century eventually, I'm sure. So the uh, impressionist Claude Monet painted a series of paintings on the fog. And he would sit at one spot and paint the same vista five or six times. And he was transfixed. And mm. the colors that come out are orange, reds and purples and different and yellows, of course, and all of these really interesting colors. So you're mixing with like the natural environment with the lights of the city and the sun going down and things like that. Orange, brown, yellow, mm -hmm. gray, and black. Um, mm. So there's a lot of color, not just like this dense gray fog that we tend to think of. It was a polluted fog. It was a, a nasty fog. And what's happening is that all the pollution from the coal that's being burned, sulfur dioxide, is being trapped in the city by the cold air and it's just staying and it's lingering and you know festering. So that um, so the chemical in coal is what's creating the yellow tinge? Yes. So okay. it, it depends on the kinds of coal you're burning, how you're burning it. So is that What's, like when they talk about clean coal? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I figured. there's a great quote from Charles Dickens from his book, uh, Bleak House, not one that we think of very often, 1852. My mom loves Bleak House. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. We got a, we got a, we got a deep tissue uh, Dickens stand in our audience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, fog everywhere. Fog up the river where it flows among green eights and meadows. Fog down the river where it rolls defiled among the tears of shipping and the waterside pollutions of a great and dirty city. Oof. Fog on the Essex marshes. Fog in the eyes and throats of ancient Greenwich pensioners wheezing by the fireside of their wards. Fog in the stem and bowl of the afternoon pipe of the wrathful skipper down in his close cabin. Fog cruelly pinching the toes and fingers of his shivering little prentice boy on deck. Chance people on bridges peeping over the parapets into a nether sky of fog, with fog all around them, as if they were up in a balloon and hanging in the misty clouds. That guy, man, he could write. <laughs> I mean, graphic, haunting, yeah. romantic, terrible. So, Katie, we know from The Crown that these fogs had a kind of funny name. Do you remember? Oh, do I? They were often referred to as a pea super. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in that we think of pea soup as greenish yellow, right? Right. And so they called these fogs pea supers. Oh, it's, and just, it's just a bit of a pea super. Nothing to worry about. Oh, how was your day, darling? Oh, it was great until that pea super rolled in. <laughs> So the pea supers were a common expected thing. Think about being here for centuries. And um, there was a really interesting thing where children were deprived of sunlight in these times. Mm. And in the 20th century, sort of overthinking and, and not really fixing the problem, these kids suffer from rickets where they had these vitamin D deficiencies. Right, yep. Oh, my God, yeah. 
And so what they did was they had artificial ultralight therapies in which they would like pull these kids out of school and lock them in a room and just blast them with like, an ultra- <laughs> ultraviolet light bulb for like four or five hours a day. And there's oh no, there's some great videos on. That. I found a wonderful documentary on this on YouTube. Really brought some color to this. And so it was discovered that on the shadier side of the street, there would be more deaths. Sort of like what you were talking about with the pump, mm-hmm. where the polluted side of the street, you know, was worse than the non-polluted side of the right. street. You know, you had a whole industry of people who were cleaning the city to beautify it and sort of deny the pollution. Seventy-five thousand tons of soot was deposited each year. And in Edinburgh, uh, in Scotland, they called, when Edinburgh got sooted out and smoked out, they called it Old Reeky. (laughs) (laughs) Like spelled like Old Lang Syne, A-U-L-D. Reeky. Reeky. So (laughs) let's, let's, let's zoom into 1952 a little bit more. So it was an unseasonably cold winter. Mm-hmm. And so what you have is it's cold. So people are burning coal to stay warm. So it's cold. And that, that cold air is sort of keeping the air downward. Mm-hmm. And people are burning coal in their houses like crazy to keep themselves warm, adding to the problem. And so going back to the medieval time, the main issue was people burning coal in their houses. You combine that with factories doing it in the power stations, you've got a real problem going on here. Sure. Yeah. So. Of course, uh, as the crown hints, London was burning cheaper coal post-war. And so this is post-war austerity. They have a massive war debt from fighting the Nazis. Oh, yeah. um, Fighting fascism and national socialism. And so higher grades of coal that were found in the United Kingdom, like anthracite, were not used. They were exported. So they could make money off of it. Oh, God. So we talked about this. this the center and the periphery not caring for the citizens for the for the sake of the greater sort of industrial benefit. Right. The quote um, I read from the paper that said, we can do all of these amazing things, but we can't, you know, fix the River Thames. So this is the same thing. It's like we would rather kill our own people and make some money by exporting the clean stuff. Yuck. Yes. <laughs> Yuck. So in the 1930s, they were building these massive power plants at Battersea and Fulham, and they were building them in the center of the city. And in the crown, um, the queen speaks to the prime minister in a, in a probably fictitious conversation saying, mm-hmm. well, my, my father opposed the building of your power plants, your party proposed in the center of the city. Um, so there was a thought that we should not be building these massive power plants in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um and this is going on 1930s, 40s, 50s. They're building up these things. The smog happens in 1954. So that shit ratcheted up immediately in terms of time. Yeah. Um, in 1930, there were a couple of different things happening internationally that they talk about in the show as well, which were really smart. In 1930, there were 70 people killed in a yellow fog in Belgium. And there was an, an inquiry. And it warned uh, that Battersea could induce a deathly fog. So the Battersea Power Station. I'll keep talking about the Battersea Power Station. Yeah. So there was a warning. Yo, the Battersea Power Station that you just built, that the king just dedicated. I'm proud to dedicate today this wonderful power station. Could create this fog. Yet nothing nothing was done. And the, and the prediction was that f- as much as 3,200 people could be killed in such an event in London. And that oh. was devastatingly accurate. Oh, God, they had warnings. They had a lot of warnings. So See, I haven't seen the episode in so long, I didn't even remember that part. Yeah, they don't talk about Ugh. Belgium there, but they do talk about Donora. They talk about Donora, Pennsylvania, which, again, I didn't really know about. In 1948, there was a smog in Donora, Pennsylvania. Thick, eye-burning fog for several days. Less than 100 died, but more than 6,000 had respiratory illnesses and issues. Mm. And that triggered an international conference uh, on air pollution in 1950. And it was recommended that smoke be controlled in local areas. And the local councils demanded action in 1952, two oh, years so before close. the smog. <laughs> oh, it hurts. Um, so close. And, you know, in the in the crown, the, the main sort of enemy of this story is Churchill because he's the head of the government and he's delightful to hear him deny climate issues. Um, but in 1952, it was housing minister Harold Macmillan, who would later become prime minister, who refuses the demands of the local councils in Great Britain saying, nope, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. 
And fuck it's, you. It's fuck you, fuck you. It's easy for us to judge them, of course, you know, but these people had just been through a massive world war. The country was bankrupt. They're, you know, half a billion dollars in debt. And oh, it's the same as what we were talking about before. It's, it's you know, politicians are concerned with the bottom line yes. before anything else, right? So. Yes, exactly. And coal was one of the best industries in Britain and it was a nationalized industry and they were trying to use coal to kind of prop up the country. The empire is crumbling. There's not a lot of other industries going. It's a valuable export. A valuable export, but yeah. let's get the cheap coal for our citizens. Um, <laughs> so in the beginning of the episode, in the beginning of the episode, there's this weather report that comes printed out, you know, <laughs> and there's this government official who sees the report and goes, oh shit. And they're like, you know, it's he's running through a corridor and he shows it to another guy. They shows it to another guy. Oh, 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 oh. Has the prime minister seen this? And they're predicting in 1952, there's a major Gulf warm front, Gulf Stream warm front coming towards London. And their concern was that this warm air would come into the London region and would trap the cold air that was there, what's called an anticyclone, where usually air gets colder as you go up. But in some weather events like this, the warm air can trap the cold air. And so Ooh, they they yeah. predict they predicted, oh, a major pea super is coming to London. But the people in the know in these weather agencies knew that, yeah, the fog is bad, but the fog is toxic. Um, yeah. So this anticyclone pushes the air down. So you have cold air. It's a cold December month and now you've got the warm front that's pushing the air down it acts as a cap oh. it's like it's like a lid on top of the air so the air is not circulating and what's happening people are freaking cold it's still cold so they keep burning more and more but and nothing's so, dissipating everything's just gathering yes so this anti-cyclone and what's known as a temperature inversion where the normally the air gets colder as you go up think about if you go into space you know you're going right into freezing temperatures um that's not happening and then in, in a cyclone think about the wizard of oz mm -hmm. <laughs> A cyclone is pulling the house up into the cyclone, right. right? Or into the twister. Whereas in this, the anti-cyclone is pushing air down. <laughs> so you've got these two oh, kind God. of things happening at the same time. So there's a major pea super predicted, and it descends on December 5th, the first day when the smog envelops London. And so the city comes to a screeching halt. The visibility was very limited transportation, people aren't able to take buses, cars could not travel because you could not see more than two feet in front of you. People had this memory of sticking your arm into the fog and seeing your hand just disappear. It it's was so crazy. Very dramatic. Yeah. And there are these really interesting images of police officers and constables holding these flaming torches, trying mm. to get people to see where the roads are. People are feeling buildings, you know, by brick to go, you know, where they're going. There were still sporting events held in December, which is interesting. <laughs> and so you know, ridiculous. and there's like images of like well, we a, can't cancel football. Yeah, there's a guy on a on a soccer field, football goalie, and he's just like holding the ball, like hmm, looking into the fog. Like, oh, there's no one here. Um, there was a <laughs> there was a famous like show of La Traviata that was canceled because I guess either the door was open or the window was open, and so the fog just rolled into the theater. <laughs> you couldn't see anything. Forget the fact that you can't sing in that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mad toxic. Like, eh. People were trying to make their way through. People were selling masks like crazy. Druggists were selling out of masks. And immediately this becomes a real crisis because it was fog was something they dealt with for 90 days a year, but not to this extent. This was a you unique. You can generally still kind of see. This was a thickness that they were not accustomed to. Yeah, it was yeah. the densest. It was choking, eye-burning, eye-watering. You know, it was immediate, the sense of, ooh, yeah. this is something, something's off here. But at the same time, it was a fog. And so it's like the fog will eventually lift if we just if we just chug through. I think about this in political studies all the time. There's this like sense of urgency for everything. Like, what do we how do we respond? And you're always hoping in a sense like this that as Churchill says, it's an act of God. It's going to lift. And so there's a great scene in the crown where Churchill's cabinet presents the findings of what's going on in the city and he blissfully ignores them. And this is part of another part of a series of chief executives slapping their hands on a table in front of, in front of their- We love a good table in, slap scene. In front of their government <laughs> officers. Perhaps I should remind him exactly how serious the situation has now become. This 
morning, a suburban train collided with a gang of railway workmen, killing several and injuring a great many more. In parts of the capital, there is now a total breakdown in law and order. Hospitals are filling up as our citizens are breathing in poisonous sulfur dioxide. Sometimes we have sunshine too much sunshine and they call it a drought then we have rain too much rain and they call it a deluge and find a way to blame us for that too it's an act of god Bobbity. it's weather and for better or for worse we get a great deal of it on this island Ooh, bad take john lithgow come on so uh <laughs> bad take though churchill bad take and i love how uh robert salisbury is known as bobbity it's weather bobbity and he has a great little speech in perfection there that's so good yes and what, uh, uh, yeah the, the breakdown of the communication, breakdown <laughs> of communication. I love so it. yeah we're chuckling about it but it was a crisis and we don't really know you know what the the extent of the, how the crisis was felt. What, was it felt by Churchill this acutely? Was he so just ensconced in the day-to-day -day operations of life and so wrapped up in this? The, the Crown does a great job of creating this dramatic moment. But I think what's interesting is that this was a, a long, centuries-long story. Right. So government had been denying this connection for a long time, but they knew about it. And there's also this meeting between the Queen and Churchill that takes place. And they, they met every week, as we know, mm -hmm. we don't really know how those meetings go. Traditionally, sure. <laughs> the, prime, the prime minister and the Queens meet and the monarchs meetings are sealed. They're secret. They're never talked about. And uh, there's a great scene where the queen speaks up after the prime minister's talking about the Suez canal. And she goes, what about the current weather? Yeah. You know, yeah. City. and um, he goes, what, what about it? And uh, you know, she's like, I I'd like to be updated on the uh, current reports and findings. And he goes, uh, well, I'll be sure to include a meteorological report in your next box, complete with isobars and isohumes. Like, <laughs> so good. just dismissing her completely. Like you stupid girl. You like, silly uh, little lady. Yeah. It's weather. Shut the fuck up. You know, we have to like rebuild this economy. Yeah. Um, so I am curious, you know, because that's the crown's hot yeah, take, how sure. much how much the queen was trying to push back or say something's clearly wrong here. What are you doing about it versus, you know, was she just kind of like, it seems a bit odd. There's this horrible weather. Do you know what's happening? <laughs> like, I, w I would love to know the extent of her involvement. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that we can glean this from like some really deep royal biographies. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of unclear. And yeah. I'm sure, you know, depending on the author too, you know, a lot of these royal biographies are kind of sycophantic. They you are know, a bit. They, they want to kind of paint Elizabeth in a positive light. You know, she's the hero of the story. But there's examples of when the royal family was on a royal tour in a, in the winter climate when King uh, George VI was still alive. And it was a very cold winter. And mm -hmm. there were all this rationing going on. And he writes back to people in the homeland saying, I feel so terrible that we're on this stupid, expensive royal trip while my people are suffering. So oh, good for him. Yeah. Like, you know, and th that again is also presented, you know, in sort of like documentaries is, Oh, the King cares for his people. Um, so it's hard for us to know. And the monarchy is, tr is in the modern oh, senses. It's such a fan fanboy thing with the, with the monarchy for some people. Like they're so obsessed with it that they'll protect it at all costs. Yes. Yes. The show does a great job of linking this to the, traumas of London's past. You know, Churchill talks about the memories of the Blitz when the Nazis, you know, firebombed London over the course of 1940, 1941, in which 30,000 people die and right. 57 days of bombing. So these hospitals are already becoming overcrowded with people suffering from these respiratory issues. So people in London in this time period already had weakened respiratory issues because they respiratory systems, they lived in this environment. Yeah. They, they smoked. They didn't have great diets and they were mm -hmm. exposed to pollutants over a lifetime. So what happens is the toxic particles from the fog creep into the lungs, they inflame the lungs, and people essentially suffocated. It's awful. And you can only imagine, like, there's little one could do, you know, in that moment in, a, in an emergency health situation to relieve people of that. So it's targeting people who are immunocompromised, people who are older. And so the idea is that we're talking about untimely deaths, people who died way too early, who mm -hmm. didn't, who, 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 or who maybe had long life ahead of them. So 
the second day of the fog really ratchets up. The fog gets worse and worse each day until it just goes away. And there's hundreds of robberies. <laughs> law, law enforcement, of course, the looters. Always... Oh yeah, it's 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 Christmas come early. Yeah, let's, let's rob that bank now. Let's get the the Italian job. Let's move it up. Uh, <laughs> and you know, like as many as five hundred people died on the second day. So it was massive amounts of death. Um, and so by the third day, the the choking, eye watering fog is very dense. Then the coal burning plants in Fulham and Battersea say, "Okay, we're gonna go to zero. We're gonna." Just Perhaps we should reconsider and maybe just, you know, stop for a moment. <laughs> and in many cases, like, people felt like they blamed the people for burning coal in their homes. It's when, wild when it turns into, like, well, why are you doing that? Why like, do you have to be warm? But it's the same thing as when people are like, you know, you should really be recycling or whatever. It's like, really? You think this is on one person not recycling and not the government or the corporations behind <laughs> all of this really we're gonna blame right. it on the individual do you think that cow had friends what about monsanto okay um, <laughs> so in the show there's a, a sacrificial victim a, f a fictitious staffer of churchill named venetia scott who did not exist that person's fake yeah, she fake. Oh. She was so charismatic, and the actress did a really great job. And so she is, um, she's killed by a bus who strikes her, which I also find odd because I'm like, were the buses still going full? <laughs> yeah, it feels like a bad <laughs> idea. Three days in, they were just like, keep going. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have to get to work. So that's kind of like the watershed moment where Churchill sees her dead body. He's like, oh my God, this is happening. I must do something. And yeah, he makes that's his what clicks. Yeah, he makes his big speech and he kind of wins the day emotionally. But I don't know how much of that is actually true. I haven't found if she's that not whole real. Story. Yeah, she's not real, and so I don't know. Yeah, if so I, I guess whole... my question is then: What is the actual moment that he's like? Okay, maybe there's something to this. I think knowing Churchill as much as I do, he made his mind up on day one of the fog, and you know, was just waiting for it to go. And the the government action was kind of limited because it was happening fast, but it was happening in an interesting timeline where it was visible, it was ever present, but many people lived, you know, they were, they were able to survive the fog. Sure. Cause I mean, the population of London, it's still like millions of people. So the mm -hmm. percent percentage wise, it's not like you lost a huge percentage of the population, but people were dying. Yes. In great numbers. Yes. And so the person who's really blamed for this is the housing minister, Harold Macmillan. So again, Churchill kind of comes out of this without so much of a stain, but the housing minister does. The housing minister is like, like the domestic secretary, the person who's supposed to look after the people. And he's blamed for the condition of the weather. And again, by the time the fog lifts, people go back to normal. And then the realization of what the f just happened kind of comes into, into the fore. So by the fourth and fifth day of the fog, as many as 900 people are dying a day. Um, so it's a massive problem. So what happens is in the show, The Crown, you know, this beautiful orchestral music is playing before the next prime minister's meeting with the queen, which again, if that happens every seven days and the fog is five days, how does that? Yeah, maybe we should have been having more meetings. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm counting. I'm, I'm counting days. Um, so, or maybe she, she summoned him. I think she summoned him to like reprimand him and be like, uh -huh. what the fuck, this fog? And then the wind blows in and whoop, and the fog goes away. Um, I like the idea of Elizabeth going, what the fuck, this fog? <laughs> Winston, come on, sit down. <laughs> I saw boss, shut up. That's the best part. I saw boss. <laughs> And so it was believed that 4,000 people had died as a result of the smog. So by the fifth day, the, in five the end, days. in five days, wow. and that number, of course, was complete bullshit. So there's this really interesting graph that shows the number of deaths like in the region from, like, from December to like January. Mm. And there's this big chunk in like late December into January into the new year where the number jumps to like 8,000 deaths. Mm. Yes. And so the government made an arbitrary decision that they would only count deaths that occurred on or before December 20th. Oh, stop it. Yeah. Which, of course, was right before that 8000 number entered the equation. So very blatant, very protective, very political and not Ex very human and humane. 
Extremely. Um, there's a great quote from the Manchester Guardian in January of 1953. So it's like weeks follow, you know, there's the holidays and then like people are slowly getting wise to this of like, you know, oh, my father died a few weeks after that fog. Maybe it's related. You know, so it was mm -hmm. this long term like realization from the trauma that happened immediately, people dying immediately, then to like, oh, my gosh, like this, this, these health effects. So there's a quote from The Guardian. The rise in deaths in the week after London's Great Fog early in December was greater than that in the worst week of the cholera epidemic of 1866. Boom. Boom. <laughs> so we've got threads of the trauma of cholera, of these infectious diseases. It's like wave after wave. And that yeah. kind of number go that and they're, they're using that as a benchmark to go, oh, yeah, this is major. Remember mm -hmm. that cholera outbreak in that little Broad Street area that was around 10,000 people. I mean, this is already eclipsing that mm -hmm. the entire cholera, like the cholera epidemic that happened in England happened over decades. And that was more like, you know, 30 to 50,000 people. But this is a very short period of time with what sounds like lasting effects lasting effects and i'm not one for statistics of sulfur dioxide but according to the uk's met office the following pollutants were emitted each day during the smoggy period oh no <laughs> one one thousand tons of smoke particles 140 tons of hydrochloric acid oh no so that's what's interesting that's gotta that hurt when the pollutants mixed with the natural air it turned into hydrochloric acid Oh, Can you, so, so that's that, what's going that into the hurting throat. Your, yeah, your throat, your the delicate the tissue. The eye burning, yes. Oh, owie, owie, ow. And 400, 14 tons of fluorine compounds and 370 tons of sulfur dioxide, which may have been converted into sulfuric acid. Oh, great. <laughs> So yeah, so I'm kind of I'm kind of conflating the acids here, but so the sulfuric acid is the real killer here. That's the, um, yeah, that's, that's the I, that's the I need to I need to break down this dead body because I'm a killer. Um, you know, so <laughs> getting at the tissues, right? People are burned up. You know, it was yeah. So you got this this like chemistry petri dish swirling around. Thankfully, Oof. thankfully Claude Monet was not there that day because um, he would have stayed outside all day. Um, Poor Claude. 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 Um, so. <laughs> So the British government says, okay, December 20th, whatever, we're going to contain this story. There's a, a funny story that I cannot back up completely, but I heard it in one of these documentaries. Mm. Apparently, the United States pledged 100,000 masks to the UK during this time. Thanks. Thanks, mm -hmm. America. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> it's so helpful. Check this out. So the masks allegedly now they were they were never received by the british so there's really no evidence of this but it was sort of a corporate thing where this kent filtered cigarette company put an ad on the front of the mask <laughs> <laughs> oh i want that mask in our museum so that's bad going in, that's I'm going like, in the morbid museum i already scoured ebay i'm like where the is this um and of course like the kent filtered cigarettes you know those filters for the cigarettes contained asbestos yeah okay um, the cleanest smoke you could have Safe can you imagine like right yeah come inside like take your mask off cigarette okay like yeah perfect <laughs> too too good so there is a positive result after this the clean air act is instituted in 1956 it receives royal assent when the queen signs her name and it calls for smokeless fuels in high population zones it limits emissions and, and that <laughs> and it creates incentives for households to convert to gas fire instead of burning or, or burning coke instead of burning coal burning coke yeah, burning coke, which is like as a, in cocaine. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a, bi, it's like a, it's like an industrial byproduct <laughs> that you could use. Yeah, no. I was like London should be way more fun then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Feeling cold? <laughs> Have a rail, darling. You'll feel I'm great. Clearly not a chemist. And a cigarette. Because um, <laughs> London sounding pretty cool right now. <laughs> yes, little coke under the gums shuts baby Done. right up. Um, so. You got cleaner coal, electricity, gas. They're becoming the preferred modes of energy. But as you said last week with the Broad Street Pump, it was gradual. Like all mm -hmm. of these damn things, they're gradual. It's not overnight. You can't convert millions of people's household no. fires to My to, father, to when he was still working, he worked for National Grid, which is formally known as the Brooklyn Union Gas Company. And they became National Grid when a London 
I guess it was like a conglomerate or something took them over. And part of that was like London lacks natural resources, safe, clean natural mm. resources for this kind of fuel. So they needed American expertise to help them with this. And so my dad used to go to London all the time mm. to do work with this. So it has continued to be an issue. I think that that is a very smart point that you bring up. The smog does persist. And in fact, there was another smog 10 years later in 1962 mm. that killed 700. So it was very gradual. And there's all of these interesting studies today on the environment of London. We don't, I've, I've been to London only once in my life. And I must say that I was surprised by how not foggy it was. <laughs> I was there in the spring, but I think like the toxic fogs have sort of lifted and whatever fogs are there are natural and occurring when they do. Yeah. Um, but there is a huge clarion call in, in England still to this day to improve the air quality, even though it's much improved. It is estimated that still 4,000 people die a year prematurely of air pollution. No way. Right. That's a full year. That's 365 days versus five days. I would. Um, I know you don't have this number at your fingertips, but I'd be really curious to know how that compares to other major countries. Yes. yes like G8 countries, right? Like right, who's, yeah. who's, who's the polluted, most polluted? Um, <laughs> who's the yeah. worst? We think of places like China that are rapidly industrializing and, and clearly have smog everywhere. Yes. See it. Yeah. They've jumped ahead in terms of industry, but they haven't jumped ahead in terms of the air At quality. What cost, man? What cost? Exactly. And the scary thing to me is that, you know, think about Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, all these things. It, 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 we're all breathing the same air mm -hmm. as JFK said. We all breathe the same air. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's all related. And so that globalized world is, yeah. it's, it's very contradictory. The uh, the Battersea Power Station was decommissioned in 1975. God bless. Aww, all right, <laughs> it is now a hipster gentrified industrial park. Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> yep. It's like micro businesses, coffee, startups, artists. At Battersea, hashtag Battersea. Just um, haunted by a few thousand ghosts, <laughs> murdered. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Belched into the into the world. So the interesting thing about this, Katie, is that there's not a lot of places to go or things to do beyond those landmarks of London, like the old Power Station. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe standing on the bridge where Claude Monet painted his work. There's a couple articles I found. One by the um, the Museum of London that talks about the air quality history of London, and it's very insightful going back, but there's not a lot of places to go to really uh, imbibe this. Have you heard of the show Warehouse 13? No. No, I don't know I, that. I had not heard of it either. So it's a, a sci-fi show. It's an American-based drama, horror, comedy kind of show. And the interesting thing about this is kind of a supernatural show where these field agents kind of travel through time and space, and they locate mysterious objects or dark mm. objects. Sounds great, right? And yeah. they like, and they put these What's objects- What's it on? It was on, it was on sci-fi, which is why I never oh, saw Oh, okay, it. okay. Yeah, <laughs> I don't watch that either. No, I only did... watch sci-fi when they used to have mystery science theater, other than that. Well, and it didn't survive streaming culture. We, that's another episode. So, mm -hmm. um, in my mind. So, um, so the Warehouse 13 is where they collect all these terrible things. And I came across this entry in like the Warehouse 13, like wiki fan shit. Mm. And it was like, apparently there's a, there's a London chimney in the warehouse 13 they devote an episode to it where oh. they where they isolate this chimney that apparently like is contributing to the smog so the idea is that they take these things out of the human experience to protect mm -hmm. people from these dangers so at first i thought oh is there a warehouse where this chimney is i can go see it no it's in a show stupid it's um, fake <laughs> <laughs> it's not real no you big so, idiot <laughs> so so there's not a lot of places to go or things to do, but the Crown episode, An Act of God, which of course refers to what Churchill would have believed what he this calls was. It, yeah. Yes, An Act of God, Bobbity, is really where this comes in. You can read Fumifugium, John mm -hmm. Evelyn's masterwork, which is delightfully written in Old English. I mean, that's a great artifact. It is a great artifact, yeah. and uh, that's on the Internet Archive. There's some other great books um, about this. NPR did a, did a segment on the killer fog of 52. There are so many great BBC newsreels to watch. The killer fog of 1952 documentary produced by Pathé, British Pathé, I believe, is like an hour and a half. And it's got great interviews, talking heads, video from the fog. You can learn more about Claude Monet's beautiful fog art online. You can learn more about 
the Battersea Power Station today in terms of a place you can go to in London that connects to that story. Are um, the are the Monet fog paintings on display anywhere? That's a great question. Oh, we'll have to look into it. Yeah. So I don't know exactly where you can find those. Okay. Yeah, it was like an article in The Guardian just sort of like nerding out on on Monet's obsession with the fog. Um, <laughs> I love that, though. So the Museum of London uh, wrote a great article about the Great Smog, and there's also a video piece on YouTube where they discuss a little bit about the museum's collections mm -hmm. that commemorate and memorialize this, this story. And so they have things like policemen's hats and uniform elements and the torches that they may have used to flag traffic. The and bobbies. Have, the bobbies. And they also have a really interesting artifact called a fog stick. Um, <laughs> and apparently- <Perfect. laughs> Of course, it's it's it says it all. It's simple. It's easy to understand. And apparently, the uh, the Port Authority of London had its own police force, as they often do. And so they sort of would use these fog sticks to sort of beat along the edge of the wharves and the water line to make sure they didn't fall into the water because they couldn't see where the end of the street or the port or the wharf ended and going into the water. So, but clearly. The fog is not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's get tools. Let's blast kids with ultraviolet light. Let's do all these other things. I don't see the problem. Let's scrape all the. Because I literally shit. can't see. <laughs> <laughs> Hear no evil. See no evil. Yeah, exactly. So it's unclear if the. I think this may have been part of like an a sort of a commemoration or some kind of exhibit with mm. the with the Lon Museum of London. Um, but I'm not aware of a sort of dedicated display. I am sure that if someone was inclined, they could make an appointment for a research um, inquiry with the Museum of London. Um, oh, yeah, the amount of I, I'm sure stuff and photos in their archives. And, you know, that's, that's a, a little piece of advice from us museum professionals. Most places have fantastic archives and usually some kind of a library situation attached to them, at least in the very big ones. And if you are a scholar or doing some kind of research, it's worth it to check out and see if you can make an appointment to get access to some of that stuff because it's amazing. Yes. And sometimes, you know, you have to have like a project you're working of on. And, you know, sometimes people feel like they have to fake their way or something. But often people want to do family research or whatever. And Absolutely. people also they also want to track what people are looking for. So it's not always a necessarily like a, a barrier to entry. Mm -hmm. And another thing about that is what you bring up. I'm so glad you did is that sometimes there's a fee involved. Yes. And people sometimes scoff at that. But I think it's really important to remember that we're talking about a profession. We're talking about <laughs> yeah. a world in which people are paid for their time. And if a archivist is going to help you isolate a box from cold storage that's 80 feet beneath the earth, mm -hmm. that's not cheap, you know. Mm -hmm. And they've got 30 That's other their time. That's they got, their labor. They got 30 other requests in the kitty. So and supporting our institutions is so important. And so yes. especially in the world we live in now in which truth and knowledge are under assault, these institutions are bulwarks against our lack of intelligence. So <laughs> let's do our best and support them. I think we'd be in remiss if we didn't make a concerted plug in that way. Yeah. And and we don't often go off topic but, but, it, but it is on topic you know it's it, this is at the core of what we're doing is we're we're creating a little museum so in that same vein can you guys give us some money <laughs> <laughs> my tooth hurts this uh, is a lot of work <laughs> we have so enjoyed putting this together this was such a this was an interesting topic to discuss and you know i think katie and i work really hard to present these topics in a way that is light and interesting infotaining if, it, if yes. you were, but we're always dealing with dark subjects. So some of these subjects lend themselves to humor and levity, some of them not so much. And we're always very careful not to trivialize what's behind these morbid stories, because we're talking no. often about death and suffering and disease and pain. Stories like this, especially when there are people who have been personally affected in recent times by these kinds of losses. You know, that's not that long ago. So That's people right. know people who became ill, had lingering effects. Yes. So it's it's very serious, and we do take it seriously. Right. And, you know, the homage I made in the beginning of the episode, which I should probably tie off, Katie, is that, you know, we both worked at the 9-11 Museum. Yes. And I figured this was where you were going. I, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't mention it earlier. You didn't need to work hard. So, yeah. you know, the, the terrorist attacks of 2001 were an unspeakable tragedy in terms of the lives lost, people flocking to the site to work, people who lived nearby the World Trade Center site. We now know, two decades later, the immense amount of health effects and suffering that have been born from that. Yeah. And this this event, though not an act of God per se, is still it follows that similar timeline of that. Well, 
and what long this, realization. Yeah, so that it made me think also, you know, we have people who are, I mean, where, what are we out now? Like 20, 21 years almost yeah, from 9-11. Yeah. And there are people who are still like just getting sick. So I wonder the same with the the London smog, if like it was decades and decades and then all of a sudden, oh, my nan has a cough and oh, she suddenly has lung cancer, but she wasn't a smoker. So why does she have lung cancer? You know? Exactly. Yeah. The estimates for the London smog were like 4,000 initially, but now mm -hmm. they think as much as 10 or 12,000. But even that number is likely conservative. <laughs> as we yeah. learn with these things, when in doubt, just, just round up. Um, and that's, you know, a credit to the organizations that came about very quickly on behalf of the 9-11 victims of the health effects is they've taken those numbers very seriously and they they have not been sugarcoating it. And it isn't just about you were there on the day 9-11, it's how long were you there after and what kind of crap continued to stay in the air hurting you. Right. So, you know, uh, that's the difference between having, you know, having responsibility for yes. what you did. Yes. <laughs> And those difficult decisions of like, where do you cut off the frozen zone? Very similar exactly. to London, December 20th. You know, we mm -hmm. know that the, the rescue recovery operation was nine months. Mm -hmm. And so they had, inevitably, they had to put a box around it. Right. And of course, there are people who maybe were above Houston Street who unfortunately are not covered. Yeah. You know, so it's a, it's a terrible thing. And it's something that I think we're much more woke to in our lives working in this yeah. field that we never really thought of as museum people. I don't think. Mm -mm. Well, now I'm also wondering. An another big part of the health effects is that there's been a lot of work done to help with the expense of having these health issues. You mm -hmm. know, the, I'm, some of you may be familiar with the Zadroga Act and, uh, you know, J John Stewart, who we love, has done tremendous work in, in making sure that these people are taken care of. Has there ever been any similar compensation for the victims of the smog? Not to my knowledge. I mean, no memorial or anything. Not to my knowledge. We'll um, have to look at that maybe, but yeah, it's terrible. If yeah, not. I, was, I was looking at the Battersea Park to try to see if I could find something. Um, but, you know, you got the National Health Service in, in the United Kingdom, which is a different mm -hmm. sort of animal. But that's a great point, too, is that why are these things so difficult politically? Because you're trying to explain to a senator from Arkansas who do, has really does not want to touch the story. It turns yeah. 9-11. And, you know, um, but it, it did impact every state and it is a national tragedy. And so we want to we want to put our hand over our hearts on the anniversary. But we scoff at the idea of greater funding for this crisis. And mm -hmm. that's always what it comes down to is how much does it cost? When does it stop costing us something? And it's amazing that the Zadroga Act, you know, puts these things in perpetuity after being Absolutely, rat ratified yeah. and reconstituted and revoted, you know, it was finally, I think, in like 2013, 14, 15, when they, you know, got the funding in perpetuity to say that if someone is suffering, you know, from these diseases born from working in the toxic site of 9-11. Upwards um, of, I, I think it was like 91 cancers documented at that time. I it's mean, it's growing. And that's the, the thing too, is that when you're having some kind of a thing like this smog or like the effects of 9-11, it's not just going to cause issues with your lungs because you're swallowing it too. So a lot of people will have stomach issues, mm -hmm. you know, stuff with their pancreas, things that you wouldn't think of, but like your tying this all up, like your Greek said, air is everything to us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, oxygenating our bodies means it's going to all parts of us. So it's, if you're breathing in crap, it's going to turn your body into crap. And it manifests in different ways. And I think as people, we want to sort of put the past in the past and the fact that we're sort of still living with the effects and that people are still dying from being there that day and the weeks after is hard for people to swallow, but it is happening. And, yeah. you know, that was what we did to attest to that ongoing tragedy, which uh, sadly, the numbers dwarf those who were killed on 9-11 itself. So yeah. it's a huge topic that we can explore in a series, I'm sure, of our own because we're very passionate and knowledgeable about this topic. Yes. Um, but I want to thank you all so much for listening. Excellent job. Really, really good oh. work. London. London stinks. <laughs> London stinks. <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> but we do promote travel and tourism. Uh, <laughs> awaiting, no. our, awaiting our sponsors. Um, so thank you. Just for don't drink the water and don't breathe the air and you'll have a great time. Thank you, Katie, for proposing this this wonderful London Stink series. I can't wait to explore other threads together. There may um, be a part three. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, 
Folks, thank you so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the Morbid Museum podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate us and follow us on Instagram at the Morbid Museum for more morbid content. Become a more buddy with us. Yay! Welcome, more buddies. All more buddies, welcome. <laughs> Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum podcast. Bye bye. Bye. A foggy day in London town had me low and it had me down. I viewed the morning with alarm. The British Museum. And lost its charm, how long?